our prayer, Lord, that um, others would see you living in and through us. And we pray now that as we open your word, that you would help us to see you. That you would help us to see not only what you've done, but what you are doing, even now in our midst. So open the eyes of our hearts. Bless us with ears to hear. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Good morning, church family. Luke 5. 16.02. Thank you, Joni. So if you're new or if you haven't been here in a while, we're making our way through the Gospel of Luke. And we have um, watched as Jesus went through the wilderness, was tested, obeyed the Lord, the voice of the Lord, came out of the wilderness and he was anointed with power from the Holy Spirit to proclaim the kingdom of God, the good news of the kingdom of God. And he not only was anointed with power to proclaim, but also to embody. And so he's bringing healing. Right? Pastor Gina called us into worship this morning with the words of Jesus, Behold, I'm making all things new. And that newness begins even as he first ministered here on earth. He was bringing healing to minds, to bodies, to hearts, to souls. He's healing relationships with God. And he's healing people. And we've seen in the last few weeks that Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom of God and his, Jesus' ministry to bring healing is starting to face resistance. That there's a growing resistance that we didn't see right away, but it's starting to ramp up. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, are, are, are pushing back. So we're going to see that kind of step a little bit further this morning. Last week we saw that Jesus, we, we saw him call Levi, we saw him sit down and eat with a wide variety of notorious sinners. Son of Man came to befriend sinners. And we saw him come close enough to build relationship with so that he could then call to repentance, which would produce new life. And even then, they said to him, why, why are you doing this? Why are you eating and drinking with sinners? They didn't understand. There's pushback. Well, this morning, the pushback continues. It's the same pushback, and it continues. So, here, um, God's Word, starting at Luke 5:33. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise they'll have have torn the new garment 
and the patch from the new won't match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No. New wineskins, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, for they say the old is better. God's Word. Ann and I have uh, an acquaintance, a dear person that we're going to call Julie this morning, who has been in a world of financial hurt for, for many years. Well, a number of years ago, uh, two of Julie's family members, one of whom has extensive experience in the area of finance and uh, budgeting, graciously agreed with her to sit down and to go over her finances and to see if they could make some recommendations for how to improve her financial situation. And so she welcomed that help. She was glad to have them sit down. And uh, as they sat down together, it turned out that the major culprit for her financial hardships was one thing. It was a car that she couldn't afford. So she had gotten herself into a new or newer car with these payments that were really too high. And as she was uh, trying hard to make those payments, all of her other payments, she was getting behind on. And so uh, as they talked together, the the solution became kind of obvious. Sell the car, get out from underneath the, the large payments, buy a cheap car that will get you through until your debt is paid off, and then when you're out of debt, save up, for the car of your choice, and pay cash so that you're not stuck again like you're stuck right now under these oppressive payments that you can't afford. And so, what great news. You know, heading into that conversation, they didn't know if there was going to be an out. They didn't know if there was going to be a way to rework things. But as they looked and they saw, hey, this is the thing that's getting you in trouble, all of a sudden, there's a solution. And she's hearing this news, hey, I don't have to live with all this pressure and this anxiety and and being constantly behind and never able to catch up and not sure if there's going to be enough at the end of the month and there's a way out. And even better, the person who's sitting down with her offers, you know what, we'll help you financially. We'll help you as you sell this car and follow this plan. And so Julie doesn't sell her car. Julie would not sell her car. She would not part with the one thing that would greatly improve her financial situation and relieve her of stress and anxiety. She was too attached to it. And the fruit of Julie's unwillingness to make that change has been years and years and years of barely scraping by of regularly having to ask others for help, of almost losing her house, of piling up more debt, and living with constant stress and anxiety, all because she would not make a change. Change is hard. And change is often made especially hard because of this little thing that we call pride. So even when change appears good and it appears necessary, we bulk. We resist. We're slow to be willing. Because change requires humility. 
And change takes sacrifice. And sometimes change hurts. But hear this. Not changing can hurt a whole lot more than changing. And so for Julie, the unwillingness to give up that vehicle meant years and years of hardship. For the religious leaders in today's passage, and we'll get to us in a minute, but for the religious leaders in today's passage, not changing may have an even more disastrous result. They may miss out entirely on the grace of God, the grace of God that's present in Jesus. Remember last week we heard that these religious leaders had the whole Old Testament memorized? That to get to this point, they would have memorized it? The whole Old Testament, which eagerly longs for and expects and looks forward to the Savior, to Jesus. And here he is, right in front of their noses, preaching good news, driving out evil, healing people, and they can't see him. They can't see Jesus. They can't see what God is doing through Jesus. Why? Because Jesus isn't conforming to their expectations. Jesus is attending parties and not fasting. And that doesn't make sense to them because no self-respecting Jewish leader in Jesus' day would fast less than two days a week. And so here's the questions we need to start with. What is fasting? What is fasting? Why are these leaders doing it? Why are they expecting Jesus to do it? And why is Jesus expecting them to change? Fasting is the religious practice of giving up food and sometimes drink in order to show sincere devotion to God and to dedicate oneself more fully to prayer. It's often a way, it's not always, but it's often a way for us to demonstrate sorrow for sin and to pray for God's deliverance, God's work to deepen in our life, God, God to deliver us from evil. And actually... God had instituted the practice of fasting when he gave the Old Testament laws to Moses. So, looking back, Leviticus 16, Leviticus 23, and Numbers 9, we read in those three passages the same um, institution where God prescribes one day per year of fasting. And that day was the Day of Atonement. It was the day when the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and he would present sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people, one day a year. And so here we are, many, many hundreds of years later, and um, God's called his people to fast one day a year, and now the religious leaders are fasting two days a week. What happened? What happened is what so often happens when um, we think that we know better than God. And so as one commentator says it this way, he says, Guardians of tradition have increased the dosage. They've increased the dosage. God says a little of something is good. And so we think, well, if a little is good, a lot, a lot must be better, right? And so this is what happens over the course of many, many years. Religious leaders add a, a four-day fast for this. The, the um, coming back to Jerusalem. And they add a, a three-day fast for this feast. And then they add a a prescription that we should fast one day a week and that we should fast here and we should fast there. And before you know it, if you want to show that you're sincere, that you are one who really loves God, that you're really sorry for your sins and you want to live righteously, you've got to fast 
two days a week. That's the standard for discipleship. That the good disciple fasts two days a week. Now, it's not that fasting is a bad thing. Actually, the New Testament encourages fasting as a healthy way of growing uh, deeper communion with God. So I just want to make this really clear. It doesn't earn us brownie points with God. Okay? Jesus is all that we need. We are in Jesus. We'll never get more right with God than through Jesus. Fasting is a spiritual discipline that helps us to grow deeper roots in God's love and know God better, to commune with Him more. And actually, there's a number of passages in the New Testament where fasting is associated with the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit. Like Acts 13, I'll just give you one example. The disciples are praying and fasting, it says, when God's Spirit tells them, set apart Barnabas and Paul for the work that I'm calling them to. And so they do that and they pray and they commission them. So we need to hear that first. Fasting may be spiritually healthy, but for these leaders, there's a subtle and there's a deadly transition that's taken place. That's this. They have grown to love the form of devotion to God. The form more than loving God Himself. They've become so attached to their idea of what it looks like to be a faithful disciple, lover of God, that they lose sight of God Himself. And so Jesus, God in the flesh, standing right in front of their eyes, and they can't recognize Him. They can't recognize the work of the Holy Spirit in, upon, through Jesus. Right? They can't see that it's... That's how you know, you know God. You recognize the work of God's Spirit. They can't see it. It's not because they've actually... These folks that have the Old Testament memorized, it's not because they've actually evaluated Jesus in the light of what the whole Old Testament says about the Messiah or the Savior that would come. It's because they're looking at Jesus through the lens or they're evaluating Him against their own, listen to this, man-made definitions of what it looks like to be faithful to God, to love God. And therefore, what kind of a person the Messiah should be. And so they miss the Son of God. And they miss all the beautiful work of God's Spirit through Him because they've elevated human opinion above the Word of God. Now, I think Jesus' response is beautiful. It's very gracious because He doesn't come at them with kind of guns blazing. He just simply and graciously says, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while He's with them? Can you do that? And um, He's drawing this huge, huge contrast because fasting's Remember, it was typically sorrowful, demonstrating sorrow, repentance. And um, bridegrooms and brides, weddings, right? You couldn't pick a more joyful feast than a Jewish wedding. Often four to seven days long, constant um, rejoicing and partying. 
And so Jesus is actually making an announcement here. He's announcing, I am the bridegroom. I am the one that God's people have longed to be together with. I'm the one that, in fact, that the world longs for. And he's saying, it's not time for sorrow. Now it's not the time to be sad. Now is the time to celebrate. You should party. Now is the time to feast. Now is the time for joy. And then he tells them a couple of parables that would, would invite uh, leaders and listeners with any curiosity, any humility, to ponder this new thing that God is doing through him. Jesus says, you don't patch old clothing to, uh, or with a piece from a new one. You don't do that because when the new piece shrinks, it will tear. And, you've are, and then you've wrecked a new piece of clothing. You, you're not going to cut out. You don't, take, you don't go to the store and buy a new pair of jeans so you can cut out a patch and put it on an old pair. You've bought and wrecked a new pair. You haven't fixed the old one. And, and he says the same thing with wineskins. You're not going to take new wine and put it in old skins because when that wine ferments, it's going to burst the old skins. And then you've burst the old skins and you've lost the wine. And the, kind of the tone of what Jesus is saying, saying this with is, oh, what a waste that would be. Because what he's saying is, folks, God is doing something so fundamentally new through me, and it's not something that you can patch together with the old system of knowing and relating to and worshiping God. If you try to do that, you're going to wreck both, and you're going to be left with nothing but broken. And so what Jesus says is, you really need new wineskins to hold the wine, and that wine is what? It's the, it represents the work of God's Spirit through Jesus. So the Spirit is working through Jesus, and He's saying if you want to get a hold of and be a part of the new work of the Spirit of God through Me, you need something new to handle it. Your old forms of knowing God, your old ways of thinking about what it means to be faithful, to love God, to be a disciple, they don't work. They're not working. God's doing something new. And what, what He doesn't do at this point is He doesn't say what those new wineskins are. And so we, we actually have to wait until Acts and until Paul's letters to see how Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection and Jesus pouring out the Holy Spirit fundamentally changes the way that we know and love and relate to God. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit comes later. But right now, what's right now? Right now, and right here, these people that Jesus is talking to, even though they don't, they don't know what the new wineskins are, they're faced with a choice. They're standing in front of Jesus with a choice. They've got to recognize the presence and the activity of God's Spirit in and through Jesus. And they've got to place their faith in Jesus which means what? Radically readjusting their understanding of God and what it means to love and obey Him. Or, they can choose to reject Jesus and the work of God's Spirit through Him. And they can hold on to, they can cling to their humanly invented assumptions about what faithfulness to God looks like. One leads to life. The other one leads to death. 
Change is hard. But not changing may hurt much, much more. The pride that would resist this new work of God's Spirit is deadly. And so now we get to us. And the question comes to us this morning, what do we hear God saying to us about the work of His Spirit in our midst that might require change? Because, you know, we aren't faced with the same questions that these religious leaders faced. We're not faced with Jesus versus an old, Old Testament way of knowing and relating to God. We belong to Jesus. We're in Him and He is in us. And God isn't about to change the way that we know and love Him. But even though God's covenant promise to us through Jesus is unchanging, God's Spirit still works and moves in new and different ways. And so as we pray, and as God seeks, moves in response to our prayer and, and seeks to draw others in to His love, to His grace, He might move, His Spirit might move in ways that we don't expect or can't anticipate or that don't fit our paradigms of how God should work in us or in our church. And so it's up to us to listen and to discern and to cooperate with what the Holy Spirit is doing in our midst. Not to be those who say, but we've never done that before. We've always done discipleship this way. That would be, would be like pride-based resistance to spirit-led change that loves the specific form of discipleship more than the object of discipleship, Jesus. And so I want to end by asking a simple question. How, how is God moving among us right now that might require some change in order to keep in step with what the Lord's doing? And I'm going to share... Um, one way that I, I believe the Lord's moving that's really significant, and um, perhaps the Lord will highlight others to you, perhaps He already has, but perhaps He will even while I'm sharing. So, this is what I want to highlight. For many years, um, we've welcomed new believers into this church, and we have encouraged them, love God with all of your heart, with all your soul, all of your mind and all of your strength. Love Him. That's the first and greatest and only commandment Jesus says. And we've challenged people, read God's Word, put down deep roots into it, pray and obey the Lord. And then we've watched as many who are new and young in Christ flounder and struggle and don't necessarily grow to maturity in Christ. And so I think that now the Lord's helping us to understand that one of the significant reasons for that struggle of calling people to love God, learn to pray, read Scripture, and obey, and yet not seeing it happen, is this. 
It's because broken hearts and deep wounds really hamper a person's ability to hear God, to obey God, and to love God. And I want to illustrate that for you this morning in a bit of a funny way. Got a couple little props here. So, so we're calling someone to love God with all your heart, right? All your heart. And so we're going to just pretend that this is somebody's heart. Uh, this is someone's heart, okay? Our inner being. I don't mean the physical heart, I mean our inner being. And, and so this someone, at a very young age, um, has a mom and a dad who begin to fight and to yell a lot. And dad is drunk, and dad is distant, and mom is angry, and mom is critical. And neither of them make this child's heart feel safe and loved. And so already here, the heart begins to break and to not trust love. It begins to get kind of pierced through the hole. Well, things get worse between mom and dad. They keep fighting. Neither of them has a place to process their own pain. They don't know why they're angry. And so one day in a fit of rage, mom takes out her anger on on child. And mom says to the child, I wish you'd never been born. And the fighting and the anger continue. Until finally dad leaves. Dad leaves. And the child's heart cries, where's daddy? Where's daddy? If he really loved me, he wouldn't have left. He wouldn't have left. It only gets worse at school as the, as the kids taunt, fatty, loser, jerk. And so with no one um, truly loving this young one, it's no wonder that they don't love themselves. And so anyone who doesn't love themselves doesn't have appropriate boundaries. And so they begin to just give themselves away to anyone who will take them. And in a few short years, this young one has experienced the intimacy of marriage without the safety of its commitment multiple times. And the sting of rejection goes deeper. You wanted me. I gave you all of myself. Everything I had, and now you're leaving me. And then the lies of worthlessness begin to take root. And self-hatred, self-anger moves in like a dark and an oppressive cloud. And the walls around the heart go up higher and, and they get thicker. They're trying to protect against the pain. And yet they're unable because the pain comes from the inside, not the outside. And so the pain won't go away. Well, it isn't long before they discover that alcohol or narcotics produce a temporary dullness. No healing. No healing, but at least it helps to mute or to quiet the voices of shame and self-hatred. Temporary relief with lots of side effects. Job lost. Marriage destroyed. Second marriage destroyed. 
third marriage destroyed. More relationships, family relationships destroyed. Shame and self-hatred go deeper and deeper and deeper. I'm such a screwed up mess. Nobody could want me. Nobody could love me after all I've done. Nobody's ever loved me. One day, they come into gray space for food. It's our food pantry, coffee shop downstairs. And we have the opportunity to share about a Father God who loves so deeply that He gave Jesus for the complete forgiveness of all our sins. Forgiveness of sins. I need that, they think. And so they pray to God and ask Him to forgive their sins. They believe in Jesus. And they begin to come to worship here. But they continue to struggle. Sadly, many of their behaviors don't change. And neither does their countenance still seem downcast much of the time, still feeling empty. All of our excitement about the love of God doesn't seem to be producing any true peace or joy in them. Why? Why? Because we're asking them to receive and to give love with a heart that looks like this. Scripture says that Jesus is the water of life. Scripture says in Romans 5 that the Holy Spirit, one of the things He does is to pour into our hearts the love of God. What happens when you pour water into a cup that looks like this? If just as this broken cup can't receive water, so the broken heart can't receive love. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey all of my commands. But how can we love Jesus if we don't first receive Jesus' love? And how can we receive Jesus' love with a heart that looks like this? When you have got a heart that looks like this, Jesus' love either hits the walls The head might hear the message and respond. But the heart, it either hits the walls and falls to the ground because the heart doesn't trust anyone. And if it gets through the walls, it might just run over and run out of these tattered ruins of a heart. And so, friends, what does this mean? What does this mean for making disciples of Jesus Christ in this church in this context. What it means is that when we call people to love God with all of their hearts, we're going to need some new forms for discipleship, for early discipleship. That in order to help people grow to maturity, 
in Jesus to become fruitful and wise and strong in the Lord, serving Him with joy and living with deep peace that will need forms of discipleship that aim at the healing of the heart. That alongside of encouraging everyone to pray, to read God's Word, and to obey the Lord, it seems that early discipleship here also needs a strong focus upon prayers for the healing of the heart. Because the heart matters. You know, we haven't done that before. We haven't done that. It's new for us. It's a new form of ministry. It's new to even think about that. It's a different looking work of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus came to bind up broken hearts. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do the things that I've been doing. Jesus bound up broken hearts. And so maybe our prayer for ourselves as a church, as we pray, Lord, show us what it looks like to make disciples and to grow them up in your love. Grow them to love you with all their hearts and souls and minds and strength. Maybe our prayer needs to be, Lord, make this church a place of healing. Make this church a place where hearts are healed. Teach us how to share in your work, Jesus, of healing hearts. Use us even though we feel inadequate. We're willing, Lord. We see you on the move. Lord's brought five people to faith in the last five weeks. Five. Five. Yeah. And we are not adequate in our own strength to disciple. But even as He is bringing them to faith, I believe He's going to show us what it looks like to, to help pray. To pray. And he's, going to show us, he's going to show us discipleship that looks different here. Same elements, same goals. Prayer, the God's Word, the work of the Spirit, making men, women, and children who are strong in the love of God and loving Him back, obeying Him. But I believe we're going to need some new forms. New ministries. And so I'm going to lead us in prayer this morning. And I'm just going to um, invite us to say, Lord, we're willing. We don't necessarily even know what it means. We know that you do this work of healing. We need you to teach us. But we're willing. We're willing to be used. And I'm going to ask the Lord to continue um, his work of healing in us at the same time. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we're just a small group of people here who love you and who want to see the love of God transform our own hearts and lives and our neighbors and even the world. And Jesus, you you took just a small group and you did that. You took just 12. And so we know that you can work powerfully with small numbers. And so, Lord, we offer ourselves to You in faith and we pray, make this church 
a place of healing. Even as you are described in the Scripture as a healing, a balm of healing, coming to Jesus brings healing. Lord, fill this church and fill our lives with, with your healing presence. So strong, Lord, so strong that people who come in and people who encounter us experience you, that their hearts are healed through us. And Lord, we just want to say to you now in the quiet of our own hearts that um, it's new to talk this way and it's new to pray for ministries of healing, but yet we're willing. We ask you to teach us, Lord, even as you've been teaching us. And, and each one of us um, says to you that we're willing to use our gifts to serve the body. We're willing to grow. And we ourselves want to be healed all the more. Lord, we need you. Friends, I want to say one more thing to you. The point, the application point in the sermon was that we would be open to considering new forms of discipleship. And so I applied that by saying that we would learn to be ministers, uh, not like pastors, but ministers of healing along with Jesus. But even as I spoke about that, I can see in a number of your eyes um, that you can relate to this cup. That your, your heart has gone through this. And that um, there are tattered pieces that still need putting back together and that need the love of Jesus to come. And so, hear this right now. Jesus longs to heal. Jesus is healing, even as he's coming to you right now and and showing you that he sees. He sees the condition of your heart. He cares. And he wants to bring fullness of God's love to bear on this heart. And so we're going um, to sing this song. I believe the Lord has one more um, word of encouragement for us before I give you his blessing. And it's this. That nobody, no life is ever beyond the redemption of God. So, so when um, Lazarus was in the tomb, they said, Lord, don't roll that away. It's going to stink. It's going to stink. And some of us are afraid of what happens when I really open up the stuff that's inside of me. It's going to stink. I don't want to let anyone see that. It looks like death. But Jesus says, roll the stone away. Lazarus, come out. And there's a resurrection from the dead. And so for everyone that comes to Jesus... There's a resurrection. There's new life from the dead. And so what I'm going to invite us to do this morning is receive God's blessing in a different way. Normally, I invite you to put out your hands like this. This morning, I invite you just to put your hand over your heart. And I pray the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you. Give you His peace. 
and heal your hearts with the fullness of His grace and of His gentle, patient, merciful love.